This episode of To The Point is sponsored by Tarsus. Tarsus Pharmaceuticals applies proven science and new technology to revolutionize treatment for patients, starting with eye care. Tarsus is advancing its pipeline to address several diseases with high unmet need across a range of therapeutic categories, including eye care, dermatology, and infectious disease prevention. Tarsus is proud to announce that Xdemvi Lotolaner Ophthalmic Solution 0.25% is now available to prescribe. to Pupil Pod, where we use clinical cases to guide discussions on board review topics. I'm your host, Scylla Ball, and my guest today is Dr. Shani Esperaz. Dr. Esperaz is a former Bostonian and now a medical retina and cataract surgeon in Cleveland, Ohio. I love following her journey through Instagram, and I'm really excited to get to today's episode. Dr. Esperaz, thank you again for joining me today. Hi, Scylla. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be on the Pupil Pod. This is a resource I wish I had during my boards and OCAP studying as a resident and fellow. I'm really excited to get to today's case, too, because this is one of those giant topics that you're always thinking about. and It has so many little nuances that I think that we'll have a lot of good information out of these next two episodes. Let's get right to it. So this is a 25-year-old newly diagnosed diabetic patient who presents to your clinic as a referral from her primary care doctor. She is visibly upset about her new diagnosis and has a list of questions for you. She has experienced some blurry vision in the last two months and had two episodes of subconjunctival hemorrhages in the last year. Her highest recorded blood glucose was 300, and she has a hemoglobin A1C of 8. So here we are with a patient with newly diagnosed diabetes. Dr. Esperaz, her first question and my first question is when does she need an eye exam, and would that change if she decides to get pregnant in the future? This is a great question and such a high-yield topic and case. So for this patient, after 20 years with diabetes, nearly 99% with type 1 diabetes and 60% with type 2 diabetes develop diabetic retinopathy. So that's a very high percentage. We recommend screening for patients with type 1 diabetes five years after their diagnosis and annually after that. For patients with type 2 diabetes, we recommend a dilated eye exam upon diagnosis and annually after that. And for patients who are pregnant, we recommend a screening eye exam in their first trimester. Well, I already learned something because I don't know that I recommend screening in the first trimester for my pregnant patients. So I definitely need to be more mindful of that and remind them because I'm sure they also don't know. So it really is up to us to let them know that that's a requirement. Um, She wants to know what she can do to help prevent the development of diabetic retinopathy, let's say five, 10 years in the future. So this is really an important part of our treatment uh, of patients with diabetes is good patient education. So it's important to talk with her about good glycemic control as that's an important 
factor in medical management of diabetic retinopathy, as well as lipid control. High blood pressure is also associated with a higher risk of progression of diabetic retinopathy and diabetic macular edema. Yeah, this is one of those topics that you feel like you're always telling your patients the most important thing they can do for their eyes is take care of their overall health. Um, But of course, as we all know, both as people and as doctors, it's usually the hardest thing to manage. Um, What do we think is the most likely cause of her blurry vision at this time? I mean, she has type 1 diabetes. She was just diagnosed. What could be causing her blurry vision? So there are several things that could be causing blurry vision, but the first thing comes to mind, and usually one of the first ocular manifestations of type 1 diabetes is a myopic shift. So this is because the excess glucose goes through the sorbitol pathway via aldose reductase, going all the way back to that lovely Krebs cycle that we learned about uh, in in pre-med and medical school. So this creates an osmotic gradient for water to enter the lens. So if you have a patient presenting with blurry vision from an unknown cause, it may be worth doing a finger stick to check their glucose levels. So since we're on the topic of the lens and we think that she is having issues related to the lens, what kind of cataract is she at risk for developing? So patients with uncontrolled diabetes are most likely to develop a snowflake cataract, which looks like multiple subcapsular and cortical gray-whitish opacities. Oh, okay. I do remember that. And I feel like the the last two things you said were just full of buzzwords between sorbitol pathway, aldose reductase, and snowflake cataract. So we'll need to come back to those in a little bit. But our next question is whether or not her recurrent subconjunctival hemorrhages are related to her diabetes. Yes, they certainly can be. When you see a patient with recurrent subconjunctival hemorrhages, you should be thinking about coagulopathies. You could also consider uncontrolled hypertension and diabetes in your differential. So this is another one where ophthalmology residents everywhere are probably cringing because when we get called about subconjunctival hemorrhages, we're often uh, quick to pretty much dismiss it and say it will get better, don't worry, but always keeping in the back of our minds that sometimes it can have um, systemic associations like diabetes. So let's move on to the retina. Much of the pathogenesis of diabetic retinopathy involves retinal capillary changes due to the hyperglycemia. One of the things that gets tested often is that we expect to see basement membrane thickening and selective loss of pericytes which leads to capillary occlusion and retinal non-proliferation. Exactly. So there are two broad categories of diabetic retinopathy, and it's really important to think back to the pathophysiology and the pathology that you just mentioned, Dr. Ball. So we can think of the two big categories as non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy and proliferative diabetic retinopathy. Diabetic macular edema is a result of hyperglycemia-induced breakdown of the blood-brain barrier, and this can occur at any time and during any stage. Like I mentioned, the big divide is between non-proliferative and proliferative disease. So if we think about non-proliferative disease, it involves microvascular changes that are limited to the retina that don't extend beyond the ILM or the internal limiting membrane. PDR is when the blood vessels extend beyond the ILM. Exam findings in NPDR include intraretinal hemorrhages, 
microaneurysms, cotton wool spots, which are infarcts in the nerve fiber layer. It also includes intraretinal microvascular abnormalities or IRMA, which is always a mouthful. <laughs> basically, IRMA, what is that? So it's basically flat neovascularization. Angiography is helpful to highlight if this is neovascularization or IRMA. So it'll leak on a fluorescein study. You can also see dilation or beating of the retinal vessels. And there's three classifications of non-proliferative disease, including mild, moderate, and severe. I like to focus on severe NPDR for a minute because this category is the highest risk to progress to proliferative disease. So I like to break it down into the 4-2-1 rule. So we can think of it as either four quadrants of intraretinal hemorrhages and microaneurysms, or two quadrants of venous beating, or one quadrant of IRMA. Severe disease can have any one of these criteria. Very severe disease can have any two of these criteria. That was really helpful. I think the 421 rule is something I'm always trying to repeat in my mind when I see these patients in our retina clinics um, because sometimes it's not as obvious as you may think it would be. So it's good to go through that again and again. How do we treat these patients with NPDR? So, kind of like how we talked about before, we really try to hit home lifestyle and diet modification. It involves systemic control of blood sugar, lipids, and high blood pressure. There's really no clear treatment for non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy without diabetic macular edema. There's some studies showing that severe and for severe NPDR, we could consider early treatment with PRP. There's also some newer trials, such as the Panorama trial, looking at a flipper set for moderate to severe NPDR. And it's shown that almost 60 to 70% of patients can experience a two-step regression in, di- in their diabetic retinopathy score. Wow. Okay. So next we have PDR, proliferative diabetic retinopathy, which we already said a little bit is characterized by the presence of retinal neovascularization resulting from ischemia. PDR, similar to NPDR, can be broken down into different categories. We have just regular old vanilla proliferative diabetic retinopathy versus the more spicy proliferative diabetic retinopathy with high risk characteristics. Can you help us go through some of those characteristics? Yes. So this, a lot of key buzzwords for boards and OCAP studying. So PDR, like you mentioned, is defined by extra retinal fibrovascular proliferation. It's really important to stratify patients and to see if they have any high-risk characteristics. So this includes patients with any neovascularization of the disc with a vitreous or preretinal hemorrhage. So the extent of MVD is important to note if it's greater than or equal to one quarter of a disc area. The extent of NVE is also important to note if it's greater than or equal to one half disc area and if there is a vitreous or preretinal hemorrhage. Um, so I would think of NVD as a worse prognostic factor. And all high risk patients, all high risk PDR patients need to be treated. I always find these characterizations hard to remember. So I try to think of little ways that I can categorize them in my mind. 
And one of the ways that I try to do it for high-risk PDR is by breaking it down by whether or not there is vitreous or retinal hemorrhage. So if there is hemorrhage, any patient with any NVD, so any disc involvement, or NVE greater than or equal to half a disc area um, would characterize as a high-risk patient. If there are no hemorrhages, then really you need disc involvement and NVE doesn't really matter. So if there are no hemorrhages and there is NVD of greater than or equal to a quarter disc diameter, then it's defined as high risk. So we'll talk a little bit more about the specific treatments in the second part of this series where we discuss the key studies related to diabetic retinopathy. But one final point that I always get mixed up is is diabetes a risk factor for retinal vein occlusion? Yes, it is. But it's important to note that diabetes is a risk factor for central retinal vein occlusions rather than branch retinal vein occlusions. Also, I know that OCAPS and boards like to test that BMI is a risk factor for BRVOs rather than CRVOs. Oh, that's a great one. So BRVO and BMI. I think we can remember that with a yeah, two. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that was a lot of information packed into one episode. So before we go, I want to summarize what we've learned about the ocular manifestations of diabetes. If you see a patient with recurrent subconjunctival hemorrhages, keep diabetes in the back of your mind. Diabetes can result in snowflake cataracts or in a myopic shift due to the sorbitol pathway using aldose reductase. Diabetic retinopathy can be non-proliferative or proliferative, and diabetic macular edema can occur essentially at any point in the disease. Non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy involves microvascular changes that do not extend beyond the internal limiting membrane. Severe non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy is characterized by the 4-2-1 rule and should have early treatment with PRP. Proliferative diabetic retinopathy involves the presence of retinal neovascularization resulting from ischemia and can be categorized as proliferative diabetic retinopathy or proliferative diabetic retinopathy with high-risk characteristics. Stay tuned for part two of this episode where we discuss PDR and DME in more detail, review some of the important diabetic retinopathy studies, and learn who Dr. Esperaz would like to have dinner with. Dr. Esperaz, thank you so much for joining us today. Dr. Ball, thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure. And thank you to our listeners. Hope to see you next time on The Pupil Pod.